Thank you. It is uh, good to be here, enjoying some nice, cool weather. I was warned by my wife uh, when she looked on the internet to see what the weather was going to be like this week. She warned me that it was going to be a hot one, and I think we, God has blessed us with, uh, with cool breeze. Uh, I certainly expected it to be a lot hotter, so I, I can actually enjoy wearing my suit coat today and not, not feel too bad. I'm thinking back um, as a teenager. I mentioned yesterday that what had turned my attention from normal childhood activities at a young age, a tender age of 11, was when my mother was diagnosed with cancer. And, and that, that experience of watching her go through terminal cancer made me keenly aware of the value of good health, the value of quality health. She was a mother that I adored and that I loved greatly, and um, she was taken away from me by disease, died at the age of 39. And, and ever since that time, my mind has been focused on trying to establish and figure out what the factors were that potentially lead to disease. What are, the, what are the factors in us, in each of us, that may predispose us towards different forms of disease? And if we could figure that out, what are then the potential solutions, the multiple strategies that could alter that otherwise reality of premature death, premature disability, premature disease, premature dysfunction that takes away our potential to serve God and to serve each other. That's the real value of our health message that we have available to share. So as a young man, as I discussed this with my father, I became very interested in reading books on health. And one of the books that I came across was Councils on Diets and Food which is loaded with shotgun paragraphs of this and that and the other. And very wisely, my father one day said to me, he says, Wesley, why don't you read this book instead? Guess what book it was? The Ministry of Healing. Same author on the cover, but what's the difference? Instead of just a compilation of shotgun blasts of this and this and this and this and this, which is actually very useful if you're looking something up or, or want to get a broader context, but it's missing something very important. It's missing the overall context of how we're to understand health and the value of following certain health principles. In the book, The Ministry of Healing, not only attracted me to learning more about health and natural remedies, but it also attracted me to Jesus Christ Amen. as a young teenager. And that's what the health message is all about. If the health message that we give does not also at the same time attract us and those that we're sharing it with to Jesus Christ, the value becomes very, very limited. The value becomes very, very temporary. 
We want a health that can lead to eternal life, right? It's all about being able to recognize the, the true health gift that we've been given, which is the opportunity to live forever with Jesus Christ and be ambassadors to the worlds beyond forever. That, to me, is exciting. That is worth whatever challenges we may have to go through in this life. So, um, today we're going to give part two of what we started yesterday on how to evaluate, prevent, and reverse diabetes and prediabetes naturally. Why are we doing actually two sections on this? Because this is, in my opinion, by far the greatest health scourge in the world. We mentioned yesterday that if you don't have prediabetes or diabetes, you are in the minority right now. The vast majority of us have either prediabetes or diabetes. Now, over, over half of people with diabetes know they have it. About a third, up to a half, of people who right now have diabetes have no idea they have it. The greatest problem with any disease is when you don't know you have it, and therefore, you're not paying attention to the cues, the clues of what to do about it. The problem with prediabetes is that I'm estimating that over 90% of people with prediabetes don't have it. So that's why it's critical that we understand this process. So let's, let's bar our heads and pray as we begin, as we discuss this very important topic. Father, you, you have provided us the great physician in your son, Jesus Christ. We want to follow his medicine. We want to follow his prescription. And we want to allow his guidance so that we can better understand what we need to be in your will today. In Christ's name we pray, amen. All right, so uh, we're basically expanding on this greater topic of re-engineering genetic risk, how, how the transforming sickness into health, the transforming power of our health message. Reviewing quickly what we discussed yesterday, what is diabetes? Diabetes is, is a blood sugar that is so high, it's high enough to cause serious health complications. There are many levels of high blood sugar below the cutoff for diabetes. In fact, based on the chart in your handout, there's five stages of high blood sugar, Four stages of high blood sugar come before diabetes. Two stages even come before pre-diabetes. Many times I have people talking to me or patients talking to me say, well, you know, I, uh, I ask them if you, if you have diabetes or if a family member has diabetes, and they'll say, well, mm, not really. You know, it was actually controlled with medication. Well, that's diabetes. That's full-blown diabetes. No doctor would ever give a diabetes medication to somebody unless they had full-blown diabetes. That's not borderline. That's not sort of. That's full-blown. Um, 
And, and, and so if somebody says they have borderline or di even diet-controlled diabetes, it's still full-blown diabetes. Diabetes is very specifically defined, and most physicians are actually hesitant to even diagnose it early. By the time most, most health professionals get to the point of talking to their patient about diabetes, they've already had it for 10 to 15 years, okay? So we need to actually be much more aggressive at helping each other determine whether or not there is diabetes. Um, we talked about how the, the problem with diabetes is that its presence suggests a three to four-fold increased risk of stroke or heart disease when diagnosed after the age of 45. But as you see in your hand that if you have a diabetes that's diagnosed before age 45, in other words, it's been going on a lot earlier, that represents a dramatic increased risk of 14 times and 30 times increased risk of stroke or heart attack. So, so that's, that should give us motivation to really do something about this. Now, what are the underlying causes of diabetes? Briefly, we discussed the insulin resistance. The muscles in the liver, they can't store any more sugar, and so the blood sugar starts to creep up in the bloodstream, and then the pancreas says, I need to make more insulin to compensate for that, and that extra insulin does what? Remember, it causes the blood pressure to shoot up. 80% of hypertension is due to high insulin production, trying to control blood sugars. So what, the best way to address high blood pressure is fix the underlying blood sugar problem, for the most part. High insulin production, trying to compensate and control elevated blood sugars, also leads to increased risk for breast cancer, colon cancer, prostate cancer. It increases inflammation, which activates pretty much all the bad genes and makes it hard for the good genes to work in our, in our system. It, high insulin gets rid of minerals through the kidneys. It gets rid of magnesium and, and zinc and chromium, all minerals that are critical for controlling blood sugar metabolism, controlling heart health, controlling metabolism, controlling musculoskeletal concerns. So you see how this touches every aspect of our health. It touches our emotional health and our neurologic wellness as well, which we'll talk about next session. Uh, other causes of diabetes include just the, the pancreas is just tired out. It just goes to fatigue. It can't work that hard anymore. It can't produce all that insulin, and so it wears out. And so that's why it's critical that we need to give the pancreas a rest. It shouldn't have to do all that work. If we go and exercise, remember, right after meals, not only does that make us feel better and helps the brain work better, but exercising right after a meal blunts that blood sugar dramatically, which means now the pancreas doesn't have to make all that extra insulin, which stores extra fat in the midsection and increases the cholesterol and the blood pressure and so forth. And then there's that autoimmune response, which, which we'll touch in a, in a minute. So what are the best strategies? Okay, let's get down to some real practical approaches, things that you could start doing when you go back home. What are some key strategies to prevent complications? And what's the best strategy? If you, you say, you know, well, I don't want to end up with an amputation. I don't want to end up going blind prematurely. I don't want to end up with chronic kidney disease that ends in 
kidney failure. Okay, so, so what's the first step in that? And really the first step is early detection. That's, that's by far the most critical thing. It's, it's something that most people don't think of. They say, well, if I get sick, I'll go to the doctor. But see, it doesn't work that way with things like diabetes. Because there's a reason diabetes is called the silent killer. Because there's, there's very little clues that there's a problem. And you don't want to be one of those individuals that is diagnosed the traditional way. Somebody who's maybe had, had uh, problems losing weight for years and decades, um, all of a sudden notices that, man, they're eating a lot of food and they're losing weight. And it seems like the more food they eat, the more weight they lose. Wow, this is pretty, pretty cool diet I came across. I, I don't think I'm doing anything different other than I'm eating more. Maybe, maybe you just need to eat a lot more to lose weight. Okay? And, uh, and then he noticed, man, I'm not only hungry, but I'm really thirsty too. So I'm drinking a lot of water and, and I'm running to the restroom a lot. Waking up multiple times during the night to urinate. Hmm. And so uh, pretty soon... A family member, somebody who cares for them, says, you don't look so good. Well, you know, come to think of it, I haven't been feeling really good either. They go to the doctor, and immediately, what's the doctor going to do? Immediately check the blood sugar, draw some blood, and many times those symptoms are strongly associated with what? The blood sugars are so high, and the kidneys are dumping this extra sugar through the, into the urine, so most of the food that they're consuming is being wasted through the urine. So that's why they're losing weight. They're just not holding on to any of their calories. That is why, some, that is why many times when a diabetic is diagnosed and they get put on insulin or even regular medications for diabetes, guess what? They actually gain weight. It's because now they're holding on to all those calories. The blood sugars have been controlled with medicine but now, that is further increasing the resistance to insulin, making the problem spiral up even more. So the key is to get evaluated. Don't wait until you have major symptoms, because usually that's about 20 years longer than you, than you should have waited. Get tested. And on your handout, you see some of the lab tests that I would recommend if somebody came in to me uh, to to really understand what's going on. And I, as I mentioned yesterday, I really like the two or the four hour glucose tolerance test, right? Sugar stress test. You have your blood sugar drowned, you take the sweet drink in the laboratory, one hour later your blood sugar is checked, two hours later it's checked. And those two readings tell us whether there's prediabetes or diabetes. And you can see that on the stages of high blood sugar chart. You can clearly see that. The three and four hour tell us if the blood sugar is dropping too much, and, and that helps us determine how to go about balancing blood sugars. But there's other tests that go along with that, and even though this is not conventional, many times when patients go to their primary doctor and say, I want to get my insulin measured, they go like, well, you're not taking insulin, why, why, do, you, why do you want to have your insulin checked? 
Well, because there are thousands of studies that show that insulin relates to many risk factors, as I've just discussed. And so I want to know if my insulin's too high, because if it is, that right there dramatically increases my risk for all kinds of health problems. The other reason is that by following a very consistent exercise nutritional program, we found at our clinic in Guam that in just two weeks of being on a daily consistent program, insulin levels dropped 50%. And this has actually been published at, uh, from the Pritikin Center in Long Beach, California, and other centers, consistently showing that the insulin level in just a few weeks' time can drop dramatically. Why? Because now, the blood sugars are being so well regulated, the pancreas doesn't have to make all that extra insulin that causes all the hypertension, all the, the promotion of cancer, and so forth. <clears throat> so those are, those are important tests. The, I was talking to somebody this morning who said, I didn't find out about my diabetes except that I went to a health fair, and there was a booth, they were just checking blood sugars, random blood sugars, and they told me, your blood sugar is really high, you need to go see your doctor. I have found that this is one of the most powerful ways to get to know your community, doing a church-run booth at a community fair, at a community um, barbecue. <laughs> I mean, go to all these places, right? Anytime there's a whole bunch of people together, put a booth up there and have somebody that knows what they're doing check blood sugar, just a little finger stick. You can use the chart that's in your handout to guide them and just say, go see your doctor. If the blood sugar one hour after uh, any food is above, is above 155. That's an independent risk factor for heart disease. And most people who go to their doctor don't get a test that that's sensitive because your fasting blood sugars are rarely tell you. Well, I shouldn't say that. They often will tell you, but it's about, it's about uh, maybe 20% as sensitive as a blood sugar after you've eaten something. That's when the blood sugar is more likely to be elevated. And so doing, doing uh, uh, having booths up where, where you provide this invaluable service. I can't tell you how many people we found that they looked healthy, riding their bikes around, checked their blood sugar, 200. And they're like, well, what? I thought it was healthy. Well, maybe you're healthier than you would have been if you didn't exercise, but you need to start paying attention to the blood sugars and get that under control. See, because many of us are really good at some parts of health, right? I mean, we're human. We kind of pick and choose. I like to exercise, right? And so when we exercise, and because we exercise on a regular basis, we think of ourselves as healthy. I exercise. And we kind of don't worry about maybe the nutrition part because, hey, when I exercise every day, I can eat anything I want, and it doesn't seem to bother me. Does, does, you know, I'm able to control my weight and so forth. You know who said that? 
I remember back in 1982, I was listening to, I was living in Barron Springs, Michigan at the time uh, with my parents. And I was, I was in college, going to Andrews University. And I, my father oftentimes listens to WBBM Chicago, News Radio 78, to, to pick up on the news. And back in those days, Bob and Betty Sanders were the co-hosts of one of the morning news programs. And I was painting the hallway one, one day, and, and they said, hey, Jim Fix is going to be on the radio with us in a few minutes. And when I heard that name, Jim Fix, how many of you heard the name Jim Fix? A few of you, okay? About a third of you. All through high school, I had actually read his books, which were motivational books related to exercise and running. And I would log my exercise, and, and, and it was just a really great way to stay focused on a good fitness program. So when I heard that they were going to interview Jim Fix, I go, wow, I, you know, I, I want to listen to this. And he was, he was there promoting a big race. I believe it was a 10K. And um, the first question that came out of Betty's mouth was, you know, we hear that you run 10 miles every day. And, you know, he, Jim goes, well, yeah, yeah. And she said, what kind of crazy radical person would run 10 miles every day? And I remember I'm painting, I'm painting the hallway, and I stop and I look, and I say, that, that's not a very friendly interview, right? And uh, so I said, like, what's Jim going to say to that? And he says, he says, well, you know what, Bob and Betty? He says, when I run 10 miles a day, I can eat anything I want. And I remember that uh, I, I actually laughed when I heard that because it was a great quip, a great comeback. And then you have this vision of, you know, these radio co-hosts sitting there drinking their Diet Pepsi and the hamburger and, you know, 50 pounds overweight, you know, the, you know, the typical, maybe uh, stereotypical uh, radio host. And, and you could have heard, there was no, they didn't say anything for a few seconds, you know, so they just burned a couple hundred dollars of radio time. And, um, but as soon as I finished laughing about that quick comeback, I remember stopping and looking down the hallway and where the radio was, and I remember saying, Jim, there's going to be a problem with that. There's going to be a problem with that. And he was like Mr. Fitness, right? He, he had a great physique. He was, uh, see, his background had been that his father had died of a heart attack in his 40s. And, and Jim, in his in his I think mid-20s, was out of a job, out of shape, about 25 pounds overweight, uh, sedentary couch potato, smoked a couple packs of cigarettes a day, had a, had a six-pack of beer at night, you know, and just wasn't a healthy guy. But one day, a friend of his said, Jim, come on, let's, let's join a 5K. And this was, this was in the... Um, in the 70s, you know, when the running revolution started to take shape. And so 
you know, he didn't want to do it, but his friend kind of egged him on, and so he did it, and actually he felt good. And he, he started to really enjoy training for these races. And because, you know, if you're going to train every day, it just doesn't make any sense to smoke, right? <sighs> let, me, let me stop and have a cigarette here, which makes you even more tired, right? So he very quickly did, uh, stopped smoking. And, and this is a very important point. Never try to get somebody to stop smoking unless you have something better for them. Why do people smoke? Because it is the solution to their problem. That's why they smoke. I mean, everybody knows smoking causes cancer. Everybody knows all the, the negative sides of smoking. Most people do. But, but they smoke anyways. Why? Because they feel better right now when they smoke. It helps them concentrate. It helps them uh, feel better. It, it decreases their anxiety. It decreases their stress and their depression and on and on and on and on. So smoking does a lot for those people. So if you tell them to stop smoking, you better have something better for them or else you're doing them a disfavor. Why? Because they're going to come back and start doing more things that are bad for them unless you give them something good. And so one of the good things is exercise and the diet and all the other things which dramatically lift the mood and stimulate the right chemicals in the body so now you got feel-good chemicals in your system that are actually good for you as opposed to feel-good chemicals in your system that are associated with cancer and cause high blood pressure and heart disease and, and erectile dysfunction and all the bad things. Okay? So, um, so Jim, Jim decided that he was going to keep doing it. So he got in tremendous shape. Stop smoking, stop drinking. But what was one thing that he didn't really think he needed to do? He didn't think he needed to change the diet, and it wasn't all his fault. Because back in that day, even Dr. Kenneth Cooper, who was his doctor in Texas, the father of aerobics, the father of preventive medicine in our country. He, he even came to Andrews and gave a talk in 1976, which I attended, and he said, he was asked this question about diet, and he said, calories in, calories out. If you can control your weight, everything's game. And I remember thinking, there's going to be problems here. That philosophy, which was pretty much the philosophy in medicine at that time, was responsible for the death of Jim Fix. Two years later, in 1984, I am, I'm, actually I'm at Loma Linda University and I'm jumping in my car to run home to get another book. And the AP news at the top of the hour comes on and the first thing out of the radio announcer's mouth is, Jim Fix, running guru and promoter of countless races across the country and the world, found dead today laying on the side of the road. Same route that he ran every morning, 10 miles. Fit, vibrant, lean individual. Exercise by itself doesn't save us. Okay, it's good for us. Exercise lowers our rate of heart disease by 50%, but it wasn't sufficient. And so the point here is that we need to figure out the strategies that are sufficient 
to accomplish the goal, to help us be uh, effective in our own health and effective examples to the world so that they too can better appreciate the value of health and how that relates to the spirit and how that relates to choosing wisely in spiritual in the spiritual realm so there's it's, it's important that we pay attention to these topics. So there's this, what I call the, the Pepsi Jelly Bean Challenge, which, which basically is telling people, if you're going to be screening them for their blood sugars, to eat the, what they normally would eat, some snack food, some sweet food, some soda, some juice, and then about an hour later, check their blood sugars. And that's what's going to give the best indication of whether or not they need to pay attention to this problem. So how many of us would need to pay attention to that? Well, at least 50% of us, right? At least 50% of us are going to find that we have a problem with that. So, so it's one of the most important tests, medical tests, in my opinion, to take advantage of. Um, there is another test that beginning in 2000, late 2009, December of 2009, the Centers for Disease Control and, and the various medical societies agreed that the hemoglobin A1C blood test could now be used to actually diagnose diabetes. It also could be used to establish if there was risk of developing diabetes or another way of referring to pre-diabetes. And they came up with a new standard. See, previously this test, the A1C blood test, essentially looks at how much sugar is sticking to the cells in our body. Normally it's, it's simply suggesting that, and you see in your handout, that for every 30 point increase in your blood sugar, that relates to a one point or a 1% increase in the hemoglobin A1C blood test. And so the level should be around 5, 5%. In other words, 5% of, of the proteins in the cell membrane would be coated with sugar. That's normal. But as the level starts going up above 5%, every, every percentage point that it goes up dramatically increases the risk for disease, for complications, for eye damage, for nerve damage, for kidney damage, for artery damage, atherosclerotic plaque buildup, etc. And so we want to pay attention to this. So normally doctors use this test only for people who already have diabetes, and it kind of helps gauge over the, over the three to four month period between visits how high have your blood sugar's been? Yeah, because some patients do what? Right? They, yeah, they, for, for two and a half months, they do whatever they want to do, and then they go, oh, honey, I'm going to see the doctor in two weeks. And so for two weeks, they hardly eat anything. They exercise every day. They starve themselves, and then they get the blood test, and they go, and like, hey, my blood sugars are, are pretty good. But the doctor has... This test, it doesn't just look at what your blood sugar was on the day it was taken. 
it looks at the average blood sugar experience over three to four months. So you can't cheat anymore, okay? Can you believe you can't cheat your doctor? So what's the whole point of seeing your doctor? Not to impress him or her how healthy you are, but to have them help you get healthier, right? <laughs> That's the whole point of it. So, um, so the, but there's another very important part of this test, which I think is the key point. And that is as the sugar attaches itself to the cells, it's actually irreversible. Once the sugar is, on, is attached to it, it's glazed. We call it glycosylation. You, there's nothing you can do to remove that sugar. So how can you eventually lower this test? Well, because the red blood cells have a lifespan of 120 days, and your body's always making new red blood cells with hemoglobin, and therefore, the, every day that we control our blood sugars, every day that, that our blood sugars are in the right range, decreases the, the amount of additional sugar sticking to the new red blood cells. And so that's, that's why even an irreversible condition actually can be reversed because God created our body to be able to recreate itself on a continual basis. Isn't that good news? Okay? This, God made it so it, it, the body is forgiving. Okay? If we repent, right? If we repent and humble ourselves and say, I will follow this new way because I want to be healed. I want, I want to become healthier. We have that opportunity. Now, the, the actual increased risk for complications like nerve damage, vision loss, kidney disease, is actually a 35% increased risk for every one percentage point that goes up, that A1C blood test goes up. So, so this test is now not only a way to see how high our blood sugar is, but it's also a test that actually measures pathology way before you have visible pathology in nerve damage, in, in visible eye damage and kidney failure. It's telling us that those cells are being damaged, and now we have the opportunity to do something about it. That's the value of this test. It also, it also shows us that there's increased risk for a heart attack, and all diabetes-related death increases by 25% for every point that goes up. Okay, so this is something that we all want to take advantage of. And personally, I think everybody should have this test. Why? Because it now is independently another way to establish whether we have a risk of diabetes, i.e. pre-diabetes, or actual diabetes, even separate to testing blood sugars. So, uh, we mentioned yesterday this phrase, no, you, you can't really reverse this disease, you can only manage it. That's, that's an old paradigm. That's a paradigm that has been proven untrue multiple times in medical studies now. The reason many believe that these lifestyle-related chronic diseases were irreversible is because the, the clinicians involved had never developed 
a therapeutic protocol that was sufficiently powerful enough to lead to reversal. We now know that kidneys can restore themselves. If you have kidney damage, the kidneys can actually regrow the nephrons, the tubules that filter out the blood. Previously, that was considered to not be able to happen. Why? Because a protocol that was sufficient to allow for a healing was not, was not incorporated with most patients. So, of course, we're not going to get healing if we're not doing what is needed for healing. If you have a horrible bacterial infection and you're just given a standard dose of antibiotic and you take it even for the recommended time of 10 days or 14 days, that's probably not going to heal you. Because, because of the type of infection that person has, they need a lot more antibiotic. So that's why we need more careful attention to what is the problem and what are the solutions that are likely to accomplish our goal. A few years back, uh, this must have been at least five years ago now, Morgan Spurlock made a documentary film called Supersize Me. Really shook up the corporate fast food world. Really shook them up. And, of course, it, the fast food industry deserved to be shaken up a little bit. We have all fallen asleep, so to speak, in our, um, in our thinking about the, the potential damage and disease that is being inflicted upon everyday Americans simply because of fast food. And it's not just the meat in fast food, it's the processed vegan foods too that are, are very, very costly in terms of health complications. So, I won't go through what that whole film talked about, other than to say that while he actually gained 29 pounds in 30 days of, of following the McDonald's diet, okay, kind of, it's like the sumo wrestlers would be proud, like, yeah, that's, that's how they gain weight, you know, they, they, they don't eat breakfast, right, they eat a huge, uh, huge lunch with lots and lots of white rice, and then for supper they go to McDonald's and just literally pig out. And I mean, it, it, it's, an, it's a spectacle to behold. People come to McDonald's just to watch these guys eat, right? And, and, and so that essentially, he, he ate breakfast, lunch, and dinner at McDonald's for 30 days. And in 30 days time, not only did he gain 29 pounds, he developed serious, severe hypertension. He developed a basically chemical hepatitis. Not viral hepatitis. Okay, they make sure that the food doesn't have any viruses in it, <laughs> right? Or bacteria, hopefully. Okay, that's not the real risk. The real risk is all the other chemicals and in, in, in everyday toxins and, and just a lack of basic nutrients that caused damage to the whole body, and his liver was starting to shut down, and his doctors were saying, you're killing yourself. If I didn't know better, I'd think that you're having an alcohol binge in Las Vegas. That's what it looked like, that they, they were just pickling their, his liver. 
But the point here is that one of the doctors that Morgan Spurlock interviewed for this documentary was a bariatric surgeon, right? He did uh, uh, bypass surgery for weight loss. And during the interview, the surgeon looked into the camera and said, Bi stomach gastric bypass surgery is the only medical procedure proven to cure diabetes. Now, um, I actually showed that film in a talk I was giving at a regional medical conference some years back. When, when the president of the medical society asked me to give a talk on reversing diabetes with nutrition, I thought at that time it was kind of like, you know, that was uh, potentially political suicide. I said that you could cure diabetes with nutrition. So I said, you sure you want me to talk on that? And he says, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I made sure at the beginning of the talk that the president of the society wanted me to talk on this. So I actually showed this interview. And then I went on to explain how through nutrition you could do the very same thing. And um, at the end of my talk, and I'll just be brief on this, uh, the chairman of the scientific committee for the conference got up and said, by the way, I just want to go on record in saying that I completely disagree with what Dr. Youngberg just said about, about nutrition and diabetes. So diabetes cannot be reversed. And then, and he wasn't being spiteful, that's just what he believed. And he, since he was, responsible for the scientific content of the conference, he felt somewhat compelled to kind of say what maybe a lot of people were thinking. And so he goes on to elaborate, right, before the question and answer session. <laughs> so I'm sitting there listening to him, and the audience is looking at me, and I'm looking at him, and you know, so we're, you know, everybody's thinking, what is, what is he gonna say about this? And I, I was thinking, man, how am I gonna respond to this? Then he goes on to say, he says, but there had been, just before my talk, a a genetic, a geneticist had been from, from, from an international speaker, had, had presented how he felt in the future you could actually genetically re-engineer the system to reverse diabetes. And so he said, well, maybe in the future through genetic re-engineering. And I said, thank you for mentioning that because that's exactly what I've been talking about. That's what we're doing here. We're re-engineering the genes. The genes don't change. The diabetic genes, the heart disease genes, the cancer genes are still there, but we're turning them off, okay? But the key is we need to make sure that our patients know that those genes can be turned off and that they have the opportunity to choose the healthy foods and the healthy lifestyle that allows that to happen. Because if we let that patient walk away thinking it's genetic, can't do anything about it, what's the chance that they're gonna look for an answer or a solution? They're gonna walk away and say, hey, that's just my lot in life, it's God's will, I'm not gonna fight it. And they will suffer because of that, unnecessarily. Two days after that conference, I'm driving in my car to work, and I'm listening to the radio again, and the, the news says, big new study from the Journal of the American Medical Association with thousands and thousands of participants in the study shows that diabetes can be cured with gastric bypass surgery. 
So it wasn't just one surgeon saying it. This is a huge study that was published in arguably one of the best medical journals in the world. I immediately started formulating in my mind a plan to present this information to my colleague across the hall, right across from our wellness center, was a kidney dialysis center, which happened to be owned and operated by this doctor who had said those words and challenged, challenged my perspective. And who did I run into on the elevator that very same morning? Now see, and, and um, fortunately, fortunately, um, God had humbled me in the remaining minutes as I drove to work and said, you know, that's not my place to rub it in, right? That's, that's not my place. That's not going to help anything. And uh, as I rode up in the elevator with him, I just, we just exchanged pleasantries, and I left that alone because I knew he was a researcher. He was going to find that out, but he didn't need to hear it from me two days after he had challenged me. And uh, it so happens that soon after that time, he became very interested in diabetes and collaborated together with me in various projects, and we became friends. We won somebody over to the cause of recognizing there's power in the choices that we make. Now, why would, why would he have felt that diabetes was irreversible? He was a kidney doctor. He was a nephrologist. Nephrologists get diabetic patients at the beginning of the problem, at the end of the problem. He gets patients that already have end-stage disease. In fact, they're so diseased that their kidneys don't function at all, and so they have to be dialyzed. That situation is not likely to reverse. But if you start paying attention to stage one, stage two, stage three, chronic kidney disease, those are reversible, right? So don't wait until stage five to start talking about it, okay? Start early enough so that you can actually reverse that, that situation. While they're studying the Journal of the, Medical, uh, of the American Medical Association, then just say that, you know, 10% of people with diabetes were able to reverse it after gastric bypass. It wasn't 20%, it wasn't 40%, it was 77% of patients. Now, my wife has criticized me in the past for, in her opinion, giving the impression that you should go out and have gastric bypass surgery. That is not what I'm talking about here. I am excited about that study because once and for all, now, nobody can come and say, hey, diabetes is not reversible. There's no proof of that. Excuse me? Just read the Journal of American Medical Association. That's all the proof you need to know. It is reversible. The key is what is the best and healthiest and most effective way to reverse the condition. See, that's the value of those studies is that now we can use them to promote lifestyle medicine. It's a program, if you can reverse diabetes, 
you're at the same time reversing all the other problems of heart disease and, and you're protecting against many cancers and you're just improving the health dramatically. That's what we call serendipitous synergy. It's serendipitous because you're changing your life to improve one little area here, but without realizing it, what you're really doing is you're blocking a terminal cancer that's starting to grow or, or an autoimmune disease that's serious, that's, that's likely to devastate your health and cut your life prematurely. But you never, never even find out about that. Why? Because you've taken a stance on something that you already know and you're doing something that's sufficient. So not only are you controlling a blood sugar or blood pressure or cholesterol, but you're at the same time serendipitously controlling something that is far more lethal if you don't take advantage of the information that we have with our health message. So how can we determine that diabetes has been cured? You know, th this is a, a real challenge in medicine because uh, uh, because doctors have been taught for so many decades that diabetes is incurable, that now they're like, well, I can't say you're cured because, of I, that's, because there's no protocol. You know, I, I, some of my physician friends say, you know, we're really good at putting people on medications and diagnosing a condition, but we're really bad at taking people off of medications and saying, you don't, you don't have this problem anymore. Because we actually give them pressure. You know, once a diabetic, always a diabetic. Once you have high blood pressure, you're going to have to be on this medication for the rest of your life. That is, that is basically giving up. That's, that's, that's bottom line what you have to understand about if you think you have to be on a certain medication for the rest of your life, and I'm talking in general now, and I'm sure there's certain exceptions, that the, our goal should always be looking at how can I improve my health to the point that I no longer need that medication. I'm not saying people don't need certain medications. The question is, maybe there's a better way to improve health so you don't need to rely on that medication anymore. So how can we determine? Uh, the, the American Diabetes Association just uh, over a year ago said, you know, we need to study this. So, so they put together a task force to study how can we then tell our patients who essentially know they don't have diabetes anymore. I mean, they check their blood sugars and they're not in a diabetic range anymore. They're completely normal. They're not on any medications. So how can we say they have diabetes when they don't have any of the signs or symptoms of diabetes? So they actually put together a task force. Well, I'm going to simplify this for them. Okay, this is how, this is how it should be done. <laughs> it's really pretty basic. If somebody's obese, let's say they're 30, 40 pounds overweight, and then they lose that 30 to 40 extra pounds. Are they still obese? No, okay, that's the solution, okay? So if you don't have the extra weight, you can't say they're obese. You can say, well, you're, you're still obese, you're just managing it well. That, that doesn't make any physiologic medical sense to say that. And diabetes and, and other conditions like that, hypertension, fall in the same mode. If you don't fit the criteria, you can't say you have it. Okay, so, so that's my recommendation to all these, these committees that want to come up with a consensus. So, um, so essentially, the diagnostic criteria for diabetes is that the blood sugar before breakfast has to be above 125. 
So if somebody for a period of, let's say, six months, never has a blood sugar above 125, and they haven't been on any medications, then by definition, they don't have diabetes anymore, okay? Now, do we want to just rely on that? No, we want to also reverse the, di the diagnosis of prediabetes, which is a blood sugar before breakfast of 100 or higher. So if you get your blood sugar, let's say you have diabetes or prediabetes, you get your blood sugars under 100, now you don't even have prediabetes anymore. So somebody with out-of-control diabetes potentially could get to the point where they don't even have prediabetes anymore. And to make sure, you could actually take all three tests to determine whether or not you have it. So if your hemoglobin A1C blood sugar test, right, the sticky blood sugar test, how much sugar is sticking to your cells, if that's less than 6.5, you don't have diabetes anymore. If your two-hour blood sugar after a meal or a sugar drink is not 200 or higher, you don't have diabetes anymore. Okay? So those are the only three ways that diabetes is diagnosed. And if you don't meet any of those three criteria, then I don't see how anybody can say you still have diabetes. You may still have the diabetic genes. I mean, you, you, you're going to keep whatever genes you had initially. You've just changed the way those genes work, and that's the great news of how this works. We have great potential. So if you are able to control blood sugars effectively without the need for medications, drugs, to, to lower the blood sugar, then there's no prediabetes or diabetes anymore. Now, um, a few years ago, researchers in Australia were, became keenly aware of the problem with the immune system-related diabetes the latent autoimmune diabetes we discussed in the last session. And, and so they did some extensive studies, and they came up with a, a simple approach to determine whether or not somebody had an, an actual autoimmune-related diabetes. The first criteria, you have to have at least three out of these uh, five criteria, is uh, diabetes that was diagnosed prior to age 50. And that was... That one's not that sensitive, but it's an important one. The second one, though, was having acute symptoms. In other words, the diabetes was associated with um, a, a rapid onset of thirst, frequent urination, maybe excess hunger, uh, and so forth. Okay? Same type of symptoms somebody would get uh, with type 2 diabetes if, if, um, if they were getting kind of sick. And the third criteria was normal weight. Now, I think this is the most important one, is that uh, one of the, the rapid onset of symptoms and then a normal weight. So, in other words, you might be sitting back right now and thinking, you know, I exercise every day, or I'm lean, I'm fit. I'm not going to get diabetes. I'm not going to be part of that 60-70% of, of the adult population that has prediabetes or diabetes. I'm not going to waste my time testing for this. I can't tell you how many fit, trim individuals I see in my office who have diabetes. And, and I believe that the reason this is becoming more and more of a problem is because of the ubiquitous nature of toxins in our environment. 
And, and we talked a little bit, if, if I wanted to have a plan to increase my exposure to toxins, what would be one of the best ways to do it? Eat a lot of processed meats, eat a lot of animal products, eat a lot of fish. That'd be, that'd be by far the best way to increase my exposure to toxins. Now, some of us have super genetics. Our genes are very insensitive to these toxins, and we're less, there's less of a negative influence from those, quote, everyday toxins that we're all exposed to some more because of diet. But many people now have, have enough of these aberrant genes, they're not really aberrant, they're, we all have them, some have more of them, that make them more sensitive to certain toxins. So they actually may be getting less toxins than, than I do, but that is enough to precipitate an autoimmune process or a toxic reaction that damages the pancreas, that damages other hormonal functions in the body, and, and later precipitate as some type of disease, including diabetes. So, so th this is why this is why I really believe that in these days, if we've been paying attention to the environmental collapse in our world, the oil spills and radiation still flooding out, core meltdowns going on as we speak, affecting fish and affecting everything affecting us right here but you don't hear about it so it's kind of out of sight out of mind uh, but we're being influenced by that and if there was ever a time to eat low on the food chain to get food directly from green leafies and and whole uh, whole fruits whole grains etc there was ever a time to eat that way it's now because yeah, otherwise we're going to be exposed to significant additional toxins. No question about that. Okay? And that's, that's influencing our disease rate, even if we otherwise think we're really living a healthy lifestyle. So the, the other characteristics of whether or not somebody has an autoimmune-related diabetes is if they have a personal or a family history of autoimmune disease. So if you have a a relative that has had lupus or has had rheumatoid arthritis or rosacea or even dry eye syndrome. That means that you're much more likely to be susceptible to an autoimmune process. And the researchers in Australia found that if you, if you had three out of these five criteria and you had diabetes, it was a 90% chance that it was autoimmune diabetes which means that it's not just a question of controlling calories in and calories out. The whole notion of just controlling calories is taking us down, a, down the primrose path. It's just, it does, doesn't work. It's not a healthy approach at all. We need to be consuming lots of nutrients. That's first and foremost, which, come, which happen to come in packages that don't have that many calories, fortunately. All right, and there is also a blood test that can be measured uh, and taken for this, and it's called the 
the GAD antibody or the islet cell antibodies. Now these aren't standard medical tests. They're, they're, they're standard, they're available, but very few clinicians actually use these tests in spite of the fact that so many people have this problem. Now if you had an autoimmune, if you had a condition that, that had a 40 to 50% chance of being somewhat related to autoimmunity, wouldn't you want to know that? I certainly would because then that would tell me I have to be especially concerned about my exposure to toxins. I have to be especially concerned about making sure I'm getting lots of colorful vegetables, lots of green leafy vegetables, lots of green vegetables. And very, very few of us, even very, very few vegetarians consume adequately of green leafy vegetables and colored vegetables. It's just a, you know, a little garnish on top of a a salad which really isn't green leafy. Okay, so we, we gotta really emphasize that in, in as many ways as possible. So I've really, I've really enjoyed the fact that I've been able to eat some decent salads here, and we need to keep emphasizing that more and more. Now there's also a blood test that's called a C-peptide, and the Lifestyle Centers of America actually did some interesting research on this test. And I've talked to Dr. George Guthrie and uh, Dr. Zeno Marcel, who, who uh, kind of did most of the evaluation of this test. And what they found was is that you can actually predict the likelihood of somebody reversing their diabetes the day they walk into your door. And so I use this test clinically, especially when there's some question. And essentially, the C-peptide is a protein released by the pancreas, which is a precursor to insulin. And, and so, as you've been learning, most of diabetes is a resistance to insulin, which means the pancreas now has to make more insulin. So if the amount of, of, uh, of C-peptide, the early form of insulin, that is produced after a sugar meal is really low, less than two, that means there's only about a 5% that that person with a rigorous lifestyle medicine program is going to be able to reverse their diabetes in a period of three to four weeks or a couple months. It's going to be a longer, longer road because their pancreas is damaged. It's, in fact, we call it senility. You know, we think of senility as somebody has cognitive impairment, they can't think straight anymore. Senility is a term for shrinking of an organ. So the brain literally shrinks during senility. Okay? But other organs can shrink too. Do you know that one of the greatest health scourges in our country is muscle senility? called sarcopenia. The muscles have become puny due to disuse. When we don't use our muscles regularly in a way to keep them strong, they lose their size, they lose their volume. That means they're becoming senile. And the same thing happens to our nervous system. You know what, the, the very first risk factor for mental senility, cognitive impairment. Well, you'd think it's, well, I can't remember a name, or, you know, forgot where my keys were, or, 
No. You know what the very first risk factor is? Weak muscles. And interestingly enough, if you take the time to exercise those muscles, it actually helps the brain. So there's this, there's this communication, this interdependence between a strong body and a strong mind. You, you want to thought that exercising your body is actually exercising your brain. It's, it's improving your brain function. So if your C-peptide is between 2 and 4, that's about a 50-50 chance that you can have a major change right away. But if it's above, if it's above 4, there's a 95% chance of reversal. That's good news. And you know what? I rarely see this below 4. It's usually 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. That's why Dr. Joel Furman says that 90% of his patients who come into his clinic with diabetes within two to three months are cured. Why? Because they really focus in on getting the right foods in and, and helping the body get what it needs to literally re-engineer their health. Okay, so why treat diabetes? The complications that we've already gone over, uh, the nerve damage, the eye damage, the kidney damage. Um, the, what I share with patients on a regular basis is this wonderful text in Romans, uh, Romans 12 too, and this is, I call it St. Paul's encouragement to his friends in Rome. It says, do not conform any longer to the patterns of this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now this is a challenge for every single one of us, because we like it or not, are part of this world, and we have been greatly influenced by this world. We have been so greatly influenced that we don't think twice about some of the behaviors that we participate in that are literally benumbing the body and the mind, and therefore the spirit. And so we have to be willing to say no to conforming to everyday customary activities, and say, I am, I am waiting for something that is better. I am uh, going to allow the Spirit of God to renew my mind. I am willing to have my mind changed. That's the challenge that we have. So the lifestyle strategies for transforming uh, uh, diabetes at a genetic level, what is it going to take? Okay? We have to really integrate these multiple strategies to get sufficiency. And this is where the principle of synergy comes in and why we need to better understand bringing things that we may not be naturally attracted to. Some of us like to exercise, some of us like the nutrition part, some of us like other aspects, but we need to bring them all together. We need to embrace all of them, otherwise we're not going to get the synergy. And as you see, one horse can pull by itself two tons. But if you yoke two horses together, now one plus one doesn't equal two, or two plus two doesn't equal four, it equals 23. Okay, so... So that's why we need to bring strategy upon strategy and integrate them all completely. That's why we have to look at a model that looks at all the potential strategies and, and, and why the WIN Wellness Program that my parents and I are involved in 
looks at what we call the, min the medical ministry model, the ministry of healing model for lifestyle medicine. It looks at all of them, but not just all the biologic factors that we normally think of, the eight natural remedies, but also the social factors. Do you know that Ministry of Healing as a book has five chapters on the importance of the family and our relationships within the family? That's part of the Ministry of Healing. Okay? That's part of our health message, is making sure that we're, that we're shoring up the family and improving the health of the family called family wellness, um, the whole issues of forgiveness and how we communicate with one another are so critical. And we could talk a lot about those, but we'll have to go on. Um, so let's, let's briefly go over some strategies for blood sugar control. I talked to some individuals this morning who wanted, what is, what is the best thing that I could do to help control my blood sugars and possibly reverse my diabetes? The number one thing that we can do, I already said we need to get tested to see where we're at, but if we already know we have pre-diabetes or diabetes, the number one thing that we can do is keep testing our blood sugars on a regular basis. Why? Because if we don't test it, we're not going to know the impact of what we've just done and how much that's improved our situation or how much that's degraded our situation. So I, in, in, in running these programs for the last 20 years, I have, I have recognized without a doubt the number one thing is if you're checking your blood sugar, you're far more likely to be successful. It's just like in our spiritual life. If we're checking our everyday choices to the Bible and the spirit of prophecy. We're using that as a form of biofeedback. Oh, wow, I read this for my devotions, and it, it, it's telling me that the way I'm thinking about something, the way I'm, I'm, I'm uh, acting on certain cho uh, choices that I have is wrong. So now I, have, now I can make change. But if I'm not constantly testing myself according to a standard, I'm gradually going to deteriorate, gradually going to fall apart. Um, so home testing, and, and essentially, if you're testing your blood sugars, what I would really recommend that you do it before and two hours after, a give, after the beginning of a given meal. And every other day, just alternate between different meals. So by, by the end of the week, you'll see a pattern. Wow, you know, when I... When I exercise after a meal, wow, that really makes a big difference. Or when I eat, eat legumes, a half a cup of some type of beans like we had for breakfast this morning, that dramatically improves blood sugars. But you can see it objectively. It's, it's coming out of your blood. You can't argue with it. That's you, right? And, and, and so legumes, beans, not only help your blood sugars after that meal, but after the next meal, and the next meal, and the next meal, up to three days later. A powerful strategy. So what we need to think is, well, what's the last time I had beans more than once a week? Okay? Or a couple times a week. Well, here's a therapeutic food that's good for cholesterol, good for blood pressure. Not just good, it's powerful for lowering cholesterol. Powerful for 
lowering blood sugars, powerful for increasing satiety and helping us feel stable and have stable blood sugars all day long, we need to take advantage of those. Second one is first-class foods. Uh, if you take my card and email me, I can actually send you a copy of first-class foods. Essentially, first-class foods are foods that are whole plant-based. And then you have second-class foods and third-class foods. We need to make sure that we are getting primarily first-class foods. Why? Because if we want first-class health, you've got to eat first-class foods. There's no other way around that. Third strategy is meal balancing. I had initially started my, my lifestyle medicine work with the idea that as long as you ate vegetarian foods, you could eat all you wanted of them any way you wanted to. I was wrong. How did I determine? How did I find out I was wrong? By actually working with groups of patients and testing the validity of what I thought <laughs> was good. Okay? Uh, so there's something about a clinical practice that changes a lot of misunderstandings that we get even from our training. And so I had this idea, you know, uh, if you just feed patients with with high blood sugar, just get rid of the meat, get rid of the cheese, get rid of the saturated fats. You can give them all the pasta or whole wheat pasta, all the, all the potatoes, all the whatever that they want, and, and as long as they eat from the other food, they're going to be fine. You know what I learned? If you have a blood sugar problem, if you have metabolic syndrome, you have to really watch your starches. I know that's not a popular message, but that's just simply the reality, the medical reality. You have, even if it's really healthy starch, obviously we need to stay away from the refined starches. That's not a question. But even of the healthiest starches, we have to watch them. Why? Because our metabolism is out of balance. That's why. We can't handle it. Now, if we were out working the fields eight hours a day, we have to be in lots and lots and lots of starch just to maintain our energy levels. But how many of us are doing that now? Very few of us are lucky enough to get half an hour of even moderate physical activity a day, which means we have to, we have to cut back on our starch intake or what? Or we will suffer metabolic disease and, and, and continue to. So meal balancing in that sense, I've found that for most people, especially if they already have some metabolic condition like high blood pressure, like high cholesterol, high triglycerides, prediabetes, etc., they need to control their starch intake to no more than two servings a meal, sometimes one serving. And then monitor, see what works, see how you feel. But you have to have healthy sources of protein, healthy sources of fats. I'm not a proponent of non-fat diets. Remember, most non-fat programs are artificial programs. They put something in artificial to make it taste like it has fat in it. That's not healthy. Um, same thing with, with uh, sugar-free. Sugar-free is not healthy okay, because they're putting something artificial, which is actually toxic. So, um, so the key here is to, using legumes is so powerful because not only do legumes have three times more fiber than other 
other plant foods per serving, but it has three times more protein or more. It's loaded with healthy protein, which helps stabilize blood sugars. And because so many of us are under so much stress constantly, the adrenal glands are stressed out, they're working overtime, and the adrenals need to have a steady blood sugar or else they have to kick in, which then causes our blood sugars to fluctuate all the time. So a healthy proteins, plant-based proteins, with each meal, I think is really critical. And then nuts and seeds are great sources of protein and healthy fats. And then optimizing digestion, which we spoke to last session. And I can't, uh, I can't emphasize this enough. This is critical. You need to make sure that you have healthy digestion. And you know what? If you just take the time to read through Ellen White's writings on digestion, you'll be well ahead of most medical professionals in understanding digestion and how to fix it. So I'll leave it at that for now. Um, and then the whole concept of what we call a dinner fast. Some of the most successful weight loss centers in the country follow a very simple rule. Nothing to eat after 1 or 2 o'clock. So solid breakfast. You know, If you don't eat after 2 o'clock, you're going to be hungry for breakfast. Even if you've never had breakfast in your life, within two to three days, you're going to be going, yeah, I think I will have breakfast, <laughs> right? Um, and so a good healthy breakfast, a good healthy lunch, and then either nothing after 2 o'clock or a light early evening meal. That is probably one of the best strategies to alter metabolism. And so I generally recommend if somebody's going to have a dinner meal, have a light dinner meal before 6 o'clock. Well, what about somebody who commutes an hour and a half to work? I get that all the time in Southern California, people commuting an hour and a half each way. They don't get home till 7.30. And so for them, it's really critical that you plan ahead and make themselves a, a healthy smoothie that they eat before they leave work. And so when they get home, instead of eating everything in sight, right? If you're that hungry, you're going to make bad decisions, right? Let's be honest. Humanly speaking, if you let yourself get hungry, you're not going to make good decisions. I know I don't, okay? And I talk about this and think about this all day long. And so if I make bad decisions, if I'm not making, being careful in my planning, I certainly can't expect my patients to. <laughs> so it's about planning ahead of time, coming up with a good strategy, Okay, and then, um, and then, as we already mentioned, the importance of light to moderate after meal exercise. Very, very powerful. Lowering the blood sugar as much as one to three points for every minute that we participate in that activity. We've previously shared the fact that, that diabetes is actually caused by an inflammatory trigger that activates the diabetes gene. And that inflammation can be evaluated. And so the key is make sure you get your blood test for cardiac CRP. This is a blood test that's taken as a fasting blood test. It's, it's Medicare approved to go along with the cholesterol profile. Unfortunately, a lot of doctors don't test for this yet. They, they don't recognize its importance and they don't know what to do about it. 
And so they don't test it. But it's one of the most powerful tests to evaluate our personal risk. It's far more powerful, in my opinion, than a cholesterol profile in establishing risk. In fact, uh, national news magazines have, have, have recognized how inflammation is the main trigger for so many diseases. We know that, um, that C-reactive protein has been found to, when elevated, to lead to a 4.2-fold increased risk of developing diabetes in women. So just having this elevation, this, this inflammatory protein in floating through our bloodstream, that in of itself increases our risk of developing diabetes by fourfold. Okay, so, so that's why I think it's an important test. It's related to dramatic increased risk of heart attacks, strokes, cancer, all kinds of problems. So we need to get tested and then do everything possible to get that under control. The value of blood testing is that it makes you aware of your need. Just like the law. You know, Paul said, if it wasn't for the law, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have known. Okay, that's the value of blood testing, is it tells us what our need, what our risk really is, and so we can do something about it. So if we're really sincere about wanting to get healthier and optimize our potential to serve God, then we would take advantage of these opportunities. Dr. James Barnard at, at UCLA has actually done research showing that in a three-week program of daily exercise and eating largely from plant-based foods, the measure of inflammation, cardiac CRP, can be dropped over 45%, three weeks. Uh, the main cardiologist out of Harvard that does work on this, Dr. Paul uh, Rinker, he, uh, he did a study now showing that certain drugs can lower inflammation. You know, like cholesterol-lowering drugs, you know the real value? The real value is not so much that it lowers cholesterol, is that it actually lowers inflammation by about 32%. What's interesting, though, is that I asked for a reprint from, from his research group of this study, and I emailed the fact that we had found in our clinic that within two weeks of a comprehensive lifestyle medicine program, the average participant decreased their cardiac CRP inflammation by 50%. And expecting just a reprint from one of his graduate assistants, he personally emailed me back. This internationally famous cardiologist and says, I want to see that data because I firmly believe that there's nothing more powerful in lowering inflammation than the proper diet. And he's the doctor who's doing all the drug studies. Okay, and why? Because he's looked at the research. He's seen the research and he knows there's nothing more powerful than lifestyle and especially nutritional variables at lowering inflammation. Well, let me just finish uh, in the next few minutes going over some of these slides. It's also important to get the thyroid measured. The thyroid hormones are really critical. And even though in the next session we're going to be talking about ways to optimize brain wellness, there is a study uh, published in the Archives of Internal Medicine in July of 2008 showed that 
having a thyroid stimulating hormone below 1 or above 2.1 represented a twofold increased risk of developing Alzheimer's over a 10-year program. So in, in particular, women who were in their 70s started in this study, and between their 70s and 80s, if their thyroid function wasn't in the optimal range, there was a twofold increased risk for Alzheimer's. But very few clinicians actually look at the optimal range. The labs that come back look at a range that is about, about double what the optimal range is. And so, in other words, we need to start asking the question, not the question, is this normal, but is this healthy? See, normal in no way equates to being healthy in medicine. So we need to stop using that word, because normal means average, and average means a 50% risk of heart disease, a 30 to 50% risk of cancer. Normal is unhealthy. We don't want to be normal. We want to be healthy. We want to have optimal. So now we need to start looking at optimal lab ranges, not reference ranges, which are purely statistical and, and don't really help us towards optimal health specifically. So paying attention to thyroid. What's one of the best ways to improve thyroid? The right diet and daily exercise, in particular exercise that pushes you a little bit and then backs off then pushes you a little bit and then backs off. That intermittent exercise activates the thyroid gland. All right. Um, let, me, let me just say, end. So how much time do we have, Pastor? Two minutes. <laughs> okay. Even Caleb's worried over there. <laughs> uh, all right. Let me, let me try to do justice to this topic in... Two to ten minutes. <laughs> the question of coffee and diabetes, the question of coffee and heart disease. There was a study out of Harvard, and Harvard does some amazing studies with the health professional follow-up group. And they actually looked at the amount of coffee consumed, and they found something really interesting. They found that individuals who drank six or more cups of coffee a day actually had a 50% lower risk of developing diabetes than those who drank very little to no coffee. Now, if you're thinking this is an aberrant finding in science, you're wrong. There are many studies showing that those who drink four, five, six plus cups of coffee a day, actually have a lower, about a 50% lower risk of heart disease, uh, 30 to 50% lower risk of hypertension, and on and on and on. And I believe those studies. Now some of you are thinking something that I did not say. Okay, so this is, this is where the, the, we have to be technically correct and scientific. I did not say that if you drink more coffee, you will have a lower risk of diabetes or heart disease or hypertension. That's not what the study showed. This, you have to actually look at what the study actually said. The study said that people or groups of people who drink 
Six or more cups of coffee are at much lower risk of developing diabetes over an eight-year period. So the question, to be scientific and objective, that we need to ask is, what is it about people who drink that much coffee? You see, the average person who hears that information goes, man, if I drank six cups of, or more of, of coffee a day, I'd be a mess, right? I'd be like, I'd be, you know, walking around shaking and ice twitching and, and, and I'd be yelling at people and I'd be really a mess. So I'm not going to drink six or more cups of coffee a day. What I'm going to do is I'm just going to drink one or two. Sounds reasonable, right? I'm going to be moderate. I'm going to be temperate. I'm just going to do a little bit. That should be okay, right? I mean, that, doesn't that make physiologic sense? I'm, I'm not going to do all that excessive stuff that's bad for you. Even though the studies suggest that it's maybe good for you. But what's the problem with, with that approach? Every study that you look at where people drink one to two to three cups of coffee, it increases the risk for diabetes, increases the risk for hypertension, increases the risk for heart disease. Wait a minute, how could that be? Six or more cups of coffee have a lower risk, and one to two cups of coffee a day, a moderate amount, something that most people who drink coffee would think that's, you know, there's no big deal, there's nothing wrong with that. But that increases risk. So how can we make sense out of this? See, that's one of the biggest challenges in medicine. Just like in theology, a little knowledge can be thrown out of proportion, and, and it makes it look like, especially if it's a good speaker and he's passionate, it makes it look like, wow, you know, this is truth when it's not truth at all. It's error. It's a misunderstanding, a misapplication of Scripture. And the same thing happens in medicine all the time. I challenge my patients who even question this. I say, next time you have a cup of coffee, check your blood sugars about 30 minutes later. And just let me know what you found out. A few months ago, I had a patient that um, had had initially blood sugars about 450, out of control. Came to a whole 10-week series that I did, two hours every week, and really was, he was into it. And um, he, he was an ex-Navy SEAL, when they used to call him Frogman. One of these guys that was an intuitive Navy SEAL, says so all the other Navy SEALs would always follow him, because he could see and hear things nobody else could see or hear. Interesting guy, but now he had he was out of control health-wise. He had strokes and heart attacks and and super high blood pressure, all kinds of problems. Blood sugars 450. I mean, he was like dying in front of me. But when I told him, I said, you can actually reverse this if you really want to. And he he leaned forward and looked at me. And I leaned back a little bit, make sure he did. <laughs> He's a Navy SEAL after all. And, and, uh, and, he's, and he said, are you kidding me? He says, you're the first doctor who ever even suggested that I could change this. I said, absolutely, come to the program. And he's, his, light, his uh, face lit up and he started changing things. Every, he'd take good notes and every time something came up, he'd add it. And when he found out about coffee, 
He was like blown away. So he stopped using coffee, his, and, and he followed all the other strategies. His blood sugars came under perfect control. He was 450. 450, went off 100 units of insulin. And about a year and a half later, um, he, was, uh, he was talking to his wife, and he looked up, and he saw that can of gourmet coffee up way up in the cupboard, and he said, Honey, we haven't had gourmet coffee in a long time. He'd forgotten. He'd been off a of coffee store, and he'd forgotten what he'd learned a year and a half before. And so he says, Honey, let's get that gourmet coffee out. Let's just, you know, let's just have a cup together. That socialization aspect of coffee. And, um, and for the next three days, he was... He was trying to figure out why his blood sugars were running 250, 300. And when he saw me in the hallway a couple days later, he grabbed me and he says, Doc, he says, I forgot something that you told me a year and a half ago. He says, after three days of going, I had uncontrolled blood sugars. I was trying to figure out, I said, what am I doing different? I'm eating beans every day. I'm eating, I'm exercising after every meal. He says, what am I doing different? And as he, and as he put his face into his hands, he looked up into that cupboard and he saw that can of gourmet coffee. And he remembered. And he couldn't wait to come back and tell me that he had, he had re-established himself on a full strategy to get his blood sugars under control. Coffee, the reason, the reason people who drink six or more cups of coffee a day have a low risk of developing diabetes is because they have blown out their adrenal glands. And there, I have patients who drink 15 to 30 cups of coffee a day. Their adrenal glands are shot. And they're essentially self-medicating themselves, trying to artificially produce a little bit of cortisol to keep their blood sugar stable because otherwise the blood sugars keep crashing. So they have the opposite problem. Their adrenal glands are shot and they're going into adrenal crisis little by little by little. So the biggest medical rationale to avoid coffee completely is because even little amounts of coffee are stealing vitality from your organs that needs to be there for the future. You're taking energy, vitality, away from tomorrow. And it reminds me, in closing, <laughs> it reminds me of a statement, an amazing statement that Ellen White made, that had not Adam and Eve had 19 times greater vitality than men and women who live today, the race would have by now been extinct. Okay? The health message has been given to us to protect our vitality. There are some things that make us feel so much better right now, but they're literally destroying our future health and vitality. There are better ways to get improvements in energy than to succumb to the common uh, custom of drinking coffee and caffeinated beverages, which is becoming far, far, far too common in our church is because we are essentially saying, I don't really believe what she says about this. 
mean, just stop and read what she says about it. If you have any, if you have, if you have made a decision that she is a prophet of God and she's actually seeking, transferring information to us from God, then we need to, we need to take advantage of that. And she was way ahead of her time. Don't wait for science to validate her, even though science eventually will validate everything. Don't wait for science to validate, because when I was growing up, I kept hearing about, oh, what she said there has been disproven by science. Well, let me tell you that that science has been disproven over and over and over again over the last 20 years. So even if a new scientific study theoretically disproves something she says, don't believe it, because it's wrong. So those are our challenges for today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to humble ourselves and just choose you and to choose your prophets, to follow the way that you would have us go in. Help us to be willing to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.